One of my favorite questions, and of course, it's one of the questions from the Coaching Habit book, is simply this. How can I help? Or if you want a slightly blunter version, what do you want from me? I think the power of the question is twofold. I mean, first, it just asks the other person to name the help that's required. And that's powerful for them because sometimes, and in fact, often, it's not totally clear what that is even to them. Now, the second power, and I think this might be even more important, is that it disrupts your own assumption that you already know what they need. Because sometimes it seems so, so, so obvious. And when it does, your advice monster is unleashed and it all goes downhill from there. But all of this points to a bigger question. How do you best give more to the world than you take? How do you best give more to the world than you take? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them, and then a good conversation ensues. Garrett Bucks is the founder of the Barn Razor Project. Now, you may be able to guess roughly what that's about, particularly if you're in the US or in the UK, where there's actually a history of this experience. And in fact, in the US, uh, particularly amongst the Amish community, there's still this tradition of what it means to be a barn raiser. Now, what it is, is a local community gets together and they collectively build and create a barn. They create a resource for one of their members, a resource that's essential for the, to the individual, of course, but also to collective success. Now, we'll get to what that means for Garrett in just a minute and why he called his organization this. But as with all of us, <laughs> it took Garrett a while to realize just what his path should be. And it wasn't the one that he started on. I like to say I spent a good portion of my life on a pretty typical white do-gooder trajectory. And I don't mean that disparagingly. There's a lot, lot, of, a lot, lot of good folks on that trajectory. Um, but what I mean by that is that, you know, I had good activist parents who taught me that, you know, we, I should go and help make the world a better place. Now, as you know, I'm pretty keen for people to be ambitious for themselves and for the world and to be a force for change. So I am all aboard with this. And to be honest, Garrett had exactly the same instinct that I would have had on where best to begin. And I assumed uh, as a white person from a middle-class background, a white guy, that my job in making the world a better place was going to be in other people's communities. Uh, and so I did a lot of the things that somebody does when you decide that your job was being helpful in other people's communities. He taught in the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, and he worked with refugees in Chicago. And actually, it was in these different communities that he started to ask himself some tough questions. There's a lot that I didn't really dig into or, um, or think about critically during that time, right? This idea that um, you know, if something's wrong in the world, my job is to come and, and, and solve it. And my job is to come and solve it. And I have a right to in places where Black, Brown, Indigenous people live and work and, and are um, 
And I can do that without asking a lot of questions about what their plans, what their dreams, what their hopes, what their visions for the places where they live and they're trying to build are. Um, so I'm proud of a lot of that, but I'm also not proud of a whole bunch of that. And so uh, in a white guy in particular, I think I spent a whole lot of my career uh, kind of feeling like I just had a right to leadership wherever I went. This is a great, powerful, difficult question. One worth really kind of examining, holding up a mirror towards I have the right to leadership. I mean, who do you have the right to lead? And where and what context? And in those contexts, who might be thinking, I have no right to leadership? And what are the implications of that? So let's dig in here. First off, what right do I have trying to go, quote unquote, fix uh, other people's communities, even that's, if that's not the language I, I, I use? Right. Um, and secondly, specifically as a white person, I was looking out in the world and I was looking at, you know, what is actually preventing progress? And by progress, I mean a world and here in the United States, a country that is committed to the common good that right. uh, says, I, I care less about just what's happening for me and my family, and I want to make a hard decision on what might be right for this generation, for future generations, et cetera. And it's hard to look at that and not say that there is a pattern of behavior, of mindset, of belief, of holding on to power, of holding on to comfort mm. amongst white communities um, that actually is, that that's where the alarm bells are ringing. Uh, yeah. And so not only was I not asking the question of, do I have a right to go and fix other people's communities, but I wasn't asking the question of, what is my community? And what does it mean to be responsible to that community? Because I think that there is a crisis right now in whiteness that yeah. goes beyond just racism, that goes beyond uh, simply the pain and harm we cause for communities of color, but also has a lot to do with an ache and a isolation from one another um, right. that I think that we need to fix. So I, uh, my work right now is something I call the Barn Raisers Project, but uh, it's it's a heck of a it's man, it's a dream. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I I get to train and coach and learn from hundreds of white people across the country and the world who are very, very different from each other. You know, got, yeah. we've got 70 year olds and we got 17 year olds. We got wealthy folks, we got poor folks, we got folks in conservative areas, folks in liberal areas across the world. Um, but what they've all come together is said, I wanna look very closely at my community. Perhaps that's a community right. of parents in Boston, perhaps that's a community of churchgoers in rural Iowa and say that particular white community What's holding us back from being mm. committed to the common good? And how can I work with the people that I'm closest to that I care about um, to move that? And I get to be on the sidelines cheering those folks on, hopefully giving them resources, hopefully uh, being useful for them. But my life is rich right now because whereas once I was wondering, you know, is anyone else seeing this? Is anyone else <laughs> concerned about this? I now every day get to be connected with this broader and yeah. broader tapestry of folks that I think is, is, is building something pretty cool. Garrett, was there um, a moment when you went, uh, this idea of me assuming leadership is perhaps not, is problematic, and you kind of decentered yourself, you put yourself on a sideline and said, this is a different way to serve? Mm. Well, I'm going to, and got an interesting answer to that, because I'm going to tell a very resonant moment that I ignored at the time. Right. Uh, and it goes back to 
but that then came back to me uh, that I really needed to think about. And I um, it came back to in my second year of teaching on the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. Uh, I, um, well, in my first year, you know, I, I did all right, but, you know, like a lot of first year teachers, the thing I wanted to work on between the first and second year in particular was my classroom management. I was like, you know, right. things got a little crazy at different points. Let's, let, let, <laughs> right. let's tamp that down. And there were a couple times in particular when um, my class would be walking through the hallways that I'd annoy other teachers because my line was too loud and stuff like that. So second year, oh, no, no, we're going to get ship shape. We are, right. we are, we are, we are, um, we're going to be known for our quiet, immaculate lines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, I was a tour guide in college, so I could walk backwards while watching my kids and be like, no, we're, we're quiet and stuff like that. Um, and was feeling really good about it. In fact, I was getting compliments in particular from other white teachers about how quiet my lines were. Um, and then one day, one of my kids' parents uh, and uh, saw me and, um, and saw the line and they were a guest. And uh, they, they took me aside later after they picked up their kid and said that uh, they actually still had memories, uh, this particular parent, of going to the old Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding schools, um, which, of course, were infamous both in the United right. States and similar residential schools in Canada for, sure. uh, for uh, absolute brutality. The, the idea was save the man, kill the Indian, right? Yeah. Um, and a renunciation of culture. And... This, this parent said, when I saw your line, um, that, that, that quiet line that you were just watching like a hawk, it brought back all of these images and memories of the boarding school, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the moment, right, like I took just the simple lesson of that. I was like, okay, cool. I should chill out of the line. That was really, really bad. And apologize to the parent and stuff like that. But years later, right, as I, as I look back on that memory, right, like you asked this question of stepping back, right? Um, and stepping back is, uh, is a question, uh, I think, for me, of what you notice, what you care about, and what you decide is important to learn mm. um, before you decide, even if you're ready to step into community with other people. Um, right. And for me, that context of what is school here? When has it worked? When has it not? What has been the role? If I, if I would like to be a white teacher in this indigenous place, um, yeah. perhaps... A, do I have the right to do that at all? But B, if I do, um, what should I know about the history of white people at the front of classrooms and how that feels in the past and how that feels now? Um, And is there a role uh, for me in this? And be okay Mm. with the answer of uh, if there's not, but to situate that answer both in what you're hearing from folks now, but also um, being curious about the context for what is true, not just in this moment, but what might be true under the surface, what might be barely buried. And how did you come to place neighborliness (laughs) and uh, at that kind of, it feels like that's the word that's at the heart of your, your work. And I'm, I may be wrong about that, but this yeah. idea of being a neighbor um, has a power to it, and it's not such a common word. Um, how did you? How did that word, that concept, um, become central? Mm. You know, there is an element of it that is intellectual, and an element of it that's instinctive. Right. The intellectual part of that story is that. If, you know, as I kept asking, what is this crisis in particular within whiteness, within white people, I kept coming back 
to these stories of you know white people didn't just wake up and, and, and one day and said let's be mean and evil and racist why right? <laughs> right. you know, that that all of this is rooted in a broader story of uh, of capitalism is, is rooted in a broader story of of imperialism but also more broadly at a simple level was rooted in the idea that of it, of individualism of the idea right. that what is most important is each of our individual walks through this earth and then when you get there you eventually make all sorts of moral uh, excuses for mm. um, other people being less than human, less important, uh, secondary characters to your primary character story, right? And so if I'm looking for antidotes to that, neighborliness is an antidote to that, right? Um, right. Is, is the idea that my primary identity is not myself as this self-actualized hero of the story, but that my primary identity is in, exist, is in existence and relationship to the people that I get the absolute privilege of being around mm -hmm. closest every single day. And as a neighbor, right, it's this random experiment in having to live around and therefore have your actions have an impact on and be impacted by the uh, actions of a random group of people around you. Um, and I think it's a, it's a small unit to start understanding uh, interconnection, start inter understanding our story as connected to others rather than isolated from that. Um, right. But then when I think, you know, that's the intellectual element, but on the instinctive, right? When I think about um, the first person outside my family that I associate with kindness and that I have just this resonant image of, right? I didn't grow up with a whole bunch of neighbors. I grew up uh, uh, in, outside Clancy, Montana um, in a gulch called Lump Gulch. Um, <laughs> and my, my family's only neighbor uh, when I was young uh, was a uh, old former, this is out of central casting, this like perfect Western character, <laughs> was this grizzled old prospector named, uh, like literal prospector named Bunchy. And Bunchy, <laughs> Was just this old, like, like, like ninety percent wrinkles, right? Like, yeah. and like mean looking <laughs> dude on the surface, right? Um, but here's was my relationship to Bunchy. Bunchy had a plow uh, on the front of his truck. We didn't. Mm. We had a big old driveway. Uh, so every day, time it snowed, which of course it does a lot in the winter in Montana, uh, 5 a.m. Bunchy was out to make sure that we had our driveway clear before all of us kids had to go to school. Um, yeah. We, growing up, didn't have a whole bunch of neighbors we could trick-or-treat at. So Bunchy threw out, all the threw out all the stops whenever we came to his house. <laughs> right. Big scary mask, he was, big candy bars. He, was, he was our neighbor, right? Yeah, yeah. And so as part of this is, is instinctual. When I say neighborliness, I think that we can think of people in our lives that have embodied that that who mm. who uh, and people who, and people who didn't bunchy didn't choose to have this family with six kids move <laughs> right. in next to his like idyllic mountain hideaway right yeah, um yeah. but we were there and because of that we were in relationship with him well i'm, I'm, I'm excited to get to the two pages but i've got a question i want to ask before before i ask you about your book which is at the heart of this i think which is so how do you begin to unlearn the heroic individualistic narrative because mm. I, I you know i feel both i feel the tug towards neighborhood and community and service and selflessness and i feel a strong need to be in a spotlight and be recognized and praised and be a leader and and all of that and i'm just wondering where where do you find the teachers and what's the what's the practices that help you to unlearn some of this stuff, which feels so deep. Mm, I appreciate that. I, it's funny you mentioned that, right? Because I am, 
I'm writing a book right now myself, and uh, and I'm writing about this trying to unlearn individualism and like the, uh, the you know moving from all these moments in my past when in particular I felt really addicted to it, and and, mm-hmm. and obviously you know the narrative of a book, right? Like it's this this you know it has to be some sort of positive narrative arc. So I'm I'm, I'm writing a story in which I, I get less addicted to it by the end. Um, but I, as I keep writing this, I'm like. I'm literally writing this in a book that is right. going to be in bookstores across the country with my name on it. Really, really fancy pants, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty amped about that, right? <laughs> uh, and so this is never this contradiction is, is is never going to be something that I think I, I win or I defeat, mm. right? Um, you know, we have, and, and and this is in our brains, right? Our brains are simultaneous simultaneously have incredible, incredible uh, uh, kind of like reminder mechanisms that like as human beings, we like our job is to be communal. Our job is to, we would not have survived our ancestors if they're not in a responsibility to each other. And our brains are hardwired to look out for threats to our individual status, right? right. Um, so both of these things are in my brain. So it's never going to be a defeating one, right? right. Uh, and so on a daily basis, I think that it is um, like any other practice when you're trying to um, sustain something that is hardier and actually more fully satisfying um, when part of you really, really wants the quicker, easier, like mm. instant gratification fix. It's like anything else, right? Of realizing that there is a ritual to my my slow morning coffee and a big glass of water that is less immediately satisfying than if I woke up uh, and had a beer and a big bowl of ice cream. Um, <laughs> but it's going to make my stomach feel better over the right. course of a day, right? Um, right? It's that same sort of thing that when I notice throughout the day, uh, the different choices I can make and where my energy goes, right? That um, there is something very, very quick fix that I can get on social media that I can get if I apply to this big fellowship and get this big award, or if I notice that a, you know, I, 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 I'm now getting a invitation to do a podcast and that feels great or, or any of the above. Um, and I'm never get that part of my brain that responds well, that the, the, the dopamine, what have you is always going to be there, but right. also just, but I think it's a daily process of noticing that when I look back in the days, I don't actually remember those little hits. What I remember is, um, you know, let's, mm. let's use this. What I remember about this podcast wasn't the thrill of getting recognized and getting to be a podcast. What I actually am really enjoying about this podcast is I'm going to talk to a cool person who has really really interesting questions and that, like who, that who is that cool person uh, I'll, I'll, intru- I'll introduce you later yeah he's, he's great no no but I, I i and that i i am and that i have my own questions because of that i'm out curiosities mm. and all the above and that uh that's just a delight right that there is a gift in when a friend reaches out to me and with a really really hard situation that they need someone to sit with right yeah. there is a uh, a gift when my my literal neighbor has a great thing happen to him or her at work right um and uh the the, the thrill of that and that it's re- it's kind of tracking throughout the day that the thrill and the joy of connection actually fulfills me longer mm. than all of those little spurts that let's be honest, I'm still going to love going after. Yeah. Um, uh, but that I'm going to be, uh, be have try if I'm doing better to have a little more thoughtful relationship too. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. What's the book you've chosen for us? Yeah, I've got, um, they can't kill us until they kill us uh, by a, 
poet and a cultural writer and just a, an absolute genius. In fact, I think he literally got a MacArthur grant this year. So I think he's officially a genius uh, <laughs> from uh, Columbus, Ohio. So another uh, Midwestern guy. Um, his name is Hanef Adurakib. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, this this book, I think I first found it, uh, feels like a decade ago, uh, in a bookstore, in a, tr- like, in a, in a, uh, in a, a train station in Chicago, um, yeah. just randomly, it's got a very, very cool cover. So nice. I bought it for the cover, uh, and, uh, best, best, uh, absolute, you know, dumb reason to buy a book ever, uh, <laughs> because it paid off. Uh, and, and of course, uh, I, I, this was his, his first work and in, in a sense, uh, just gone on to write so many other books, but, mm-hmm. uh, this, this first one in particular, um, has really, really influenced me in a number of ways. I love that. You know, I I hadn't come across this book, but when I was doing some background uh, research on it, I realized I had read another one of his books, which is... Oh, the Tribe Called Quest um, book, yeah. Yeah, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. It's a love letter to a group, a sound, and an era. And it's a a wonderful book. He is is a poet, and he loves music, and he has that as a a lens on race as well. So um, what pages did you choose from it? I mean, it's always interesting to know how you end up picking the two pages that you pick. Yeah, well, we just said it, right? He he's a music writer, right? Uh, and so he's writing about something that can be often understood incredibly superficially, right? Uh, but mm. you know, for my work, I read. I whether I have to or I just do, I read just about every book possible about race. Most of them incredibly heady, incredibly lectury, uh, in in and incredibly self serious. And these are the books he writes are also extremely serious books about race. And, and you'll see this in the passage. Um, but I think why he gets at deeper truths than most do is because I think he, like most great cultural critics, understands that there is something within culture. Uh, and within the creation of art that tells, and even low art, that tells us something, a societal truth uh, Mm -hmm. that we often can't find um, when we are putting on a front. Uh, And so there are, and, you know, Arturo Keeve in particular, I think is somebody who, he's a black man from Columbus, Ohio, who has navigated his entire life whiteness, both because that's all black people have to navigate whiteness in America, but also because as a music fan, as somebody who was both into traditionally, stereotypically black forms of music like hip hop and soul, but also was into punk rock. um, And in that community was now was weaving in and out both of unintentionally having to deal with whiteness and sometimes intentionally inserting himself in white communities as well. And because of that, I think his lens on whiteness, which of course, what I'm really, really interested in is significantly deeper than anything I could ever have to, because I watch whiteness without the lens of having to survive in it. Right. Um, I, can take it for granted. So the chapter, the two pages I picked are from a chapter of uh, an essay uh, called The White Rapper Joke. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's the, the first first two pages of, of that essay. I'm excited to hear it. So over to you, Gareth, the first two pages from Hanif Adrakib's book, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. In the music video for the 1991 third bass single, Pop Goes the Weasel, MC Search and Pete Nice are beating an actor playing Vanilla Ice with baseball bats. The actor, with large blonde hair and Vanilla Ice's signature American flag track jacket, collapsed on the ground moments earlier. Search and Pete Nice become more aggressive, swinging the bats down with a type of fervor only reserved for the movies. Pop Goes the Weasel is a song aimed at the rapid commercial shift happening in rap, 
The first wave of RAP's commodification was starting at the dawn of the 90s, when aspects of it were becoming less feared and easier for white people to digest, in part because of pre-packaged megastars like MC Hammer and, of course, Vanilla Ice. Third Base, a celebrated underground group from Queens, seemed to be fed up with the rapidly changing landscape. And so, the actor playing Vanilla Ice is curled to the ground, and we are to believe that he is being beaten within an inch of his life. There is no actor in the video playing MC Hammer. He is not also on the ground being beaten with bats, though he is as much a part of the song's structure as Vanilla Ice is. Both manufactured, with somewhat fabricated histories, created to push into the mainstream and spread their shadows over everything they could, so that white mothers in the suburbs might think of them as fun, wholesome rap music, and feel more justified wagging their fingers at the other stars of the genre. The fictional attack that Third Base is playing out in the music video, when looked at through this lens, feels like a type of reaction. Now, the joke is that MC Search and Pete Nice are also white. White rappers taking a bat to a white rapper at a time when the need to separate their whiteness from his was urgent. White rappers fighting to save the world from other white rappers in the name of real hip hop. The other joke, if you look closely enough, is that the only black member of Third Base was the DJ. His face wasn't on the cover of the group's debut album. In the second album cover, he's there, in the back. The funny thing about Eminem is that me and my crew effed with him because he talked that reckless ass like the white boys we'd known from a few blocks over who would scream at their mothers. One of them, Adam, punched his daddy one day, right there on the front lawn of his house, and his daddy didn't even do anything except cover his face and shake his head and tell Adam that he was sorry for not letting him use the car. On the east side where me and my boys were from, if you raised your hand to your father, you wouldn't be raising it to anything else for at least a few weeks. There's a level of danger that proximity to whiteness makes thrilling when taken in from afar, knowing that you could never survive it or even attempt it in your own life. Eminem was rapping directly into that proximity. For the black kids in the hood, he gained a type of credibility for the ruthlessness and carelessness with which he regarded human life, particularly his own. We understood nihilism and a desire for exit. We understood angst, anger, bitterness, and the rage that fueled it. What we didn't understand was a way to express what we understood and walk away unscathed. Eminem's fantasies often involved the blood of people who were living. And it must be funny to be on the other side of a fantasy about death. Wow, that's a killer last sentence. Um, What's the deeper truth here that Mm. gets spoken in these two pages? You know, I, I, I read these particular two pages quite a bit, uh, which is a funny thing to say about uh, two pages that are primarily about a now forgotten rap group from 1991, right? But I, I actually come, it's one of those that I, I often use as a grounding force, a grounding reminder in my own work. And I, and I kind of check on myself because there's a couple truths um, that are here, uh, for me at least. Um the you know the first in 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 that 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 passage about third base is this idea of that I think is actually endemic throughout whiteness and has been endemic in my life uh, of trying to separate yourself from other white people that you know identifies there is shame in whiteness there is shame in what we mm. do there's shame in what we've been been, been, a, been a part of um, but that 
be that if I work hard enough, if I uh, have, you know, in third basis case, if I'm as students of hip hop and if I am a real part of this culture in a way that Vanilla Ice isn't, um, then not only can I be respected as something that other white people aren't, but I can actually be on the front lines of guarding this culture, which now I decide is mine from mm. other white people, right? Um, and when I think about the way I've done politics through the years, right? Like, it, 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 and, and by doing politics, I mean, you know, engaging in the world, I think yeah. about all of these moments of trying to separate myself from other white people that, you know, that, that first decision, I'm going to be a teacher on the Navajo Nation um, instead of go and sell out and keep making, make, make, making money and all the above. I am doing something good that is different from what what this country has done for a number of years, right? right. Um, I um, that if I have read all these books about race and have these right answers, uh, then I am a million miles away from somebody who might have stormed the Capitol on January sixth, right? right. Um, and so that's, that's that's the first piece, right? And and this idea that <laughs> I, I I it took me so long to discover a lot of things about that. One of which was just how transparent and easy to um, e- easy to snort at uh, and just how, uh, how cartoonish that attempt on the part of white people looks to people of color, uh, quite frankly. <laughs> like, yo, who are you fooling? Like, right. you guys are white too. You don't get to beat up vanilla ice and pretend that <laughs> right. you've saved hip hop, right? Um, but then, you know, so that, that, that piece is really, really true. But then there's another, uh, um, you know, this, and... But when I leave it there, right, this attempt to try to run from whiteness is uh, I can I can feel badly about it. I can decide I don't want to do this. But I, I if I leave it there, I um, can still convince myself that the only sin of it is that it was cheesy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if I then layer on that second passage uh, about Eminem, right, um, I it is um, and the way in which. Eminem operated within hip hop um, uh, without an awareness of um, what violence meant and uh, for him uh, and what nihilism meant for him and what he had the right to do and what society would allow him to do uh, versus what that meant uh, for black rappers or black artists um, or black people. Um, you know, the danger of that, of saying, not only do I have a right to other people's experience, um, but um, I'm going to operate from an interiority of that experience. I'm going to operate as if I'm an insider um, uh, and pretend that the rules are therefore the same for me uh, when they aren't uh, is actually a very, very dangerous assumption um, because it means that you are, as a white person, increasing the likelihood that um you're going to destabilize the situation because something that's safe for you and that proximity to proximity to you is safe for you, but proximity to you might not always be safe for other communities. So the idea that my attempt to run away from other white people and try to just be accepted within communities of color and try to feel as if I'm an insider community colors, it's not just that it's cheesy. Um, it brings with it all sorts of harm and danger. Um, and I think that is just alive throughout uh, that passage. So there's a lot going on here, Garrett, and I'm, I'm holding on as best I can. I guess I've got two questions for you. I think they're interrelated. Um, first is, how do you sit with whiteness now? And secondly, how do 
a person who is white play a role in the injustices we see based on race? Mm -hmm. You know, whiteness is completely made up, right? Uh, Any racial category is completely made up, right? Um, The idea that there is a a meaning to pigmentation and that has any societal function, yeah. Total, total myth, right? Uh, the contours of who has been considered white at different points has changed dramatically at different points, mm-hmm. right? That there have been times you know, that, that the Irish have not been white at different points, Jews have not been white at different points, um, that there is a, a long process of assimilation, welcoming into co- power, that then all of a sudden you get to be part of this made up category. So I say all that to say that um, completely made up. Just as, as the concept of something called black is completely made up, the concept of something called Latinx is completely made up, et cetera, right? Um, but uh, we've been making that up for a few hundred years now. Uh, <laughs> and we've been making that up in, in the context of America for the, in our entire history as a country. Uh, and uh, we were the place where that story in particular really, really took hold, that there is something called whiteness that, that is imbued with it, something, spe- something that society grants special powers in. And that means that right now, uh, that made-up idea is actually very, very real, uh, um, and uh, even though it's completely a myth. Um, and that realness means that there is an experience of being white in this country um, and of growing up white and wrestling with history and wrestling with this moment and wrestling with what it means to uh, have inherited um, the top tier of a hierarchy and know, but knowing implicitly, even if we don't want to admit it, that if society is actually going to function in a way that works for all of us and our gener- and our 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 children, um, that we're going to have to move away from that tier. Um, but we don't know how. That there is actually a common experience of being white um, and of not having figured out what comes next within whiteness. Mm. Um, that all of us are who are white are in the middle of right now. And so if you've got a community, even if it was fake to begin with, but a group of people that now is a real societal category with meaning that has a dilemma that none of us have actually figured out, which is what does living in the world without being artificially on top of it look like? And what does moving from here to there look like? And what does, what scares me about that? Um, what does that require of me? Um, what am I going to, what do I not even understand about it? Um, that's what binds us together. And we focus a lot in particular progressive white people on the ways in which our understanding of this moment seems to be different from other white people, right? Like I'm not mad about an immigrant coming into my country. Therefore I am not, uh, I, I don't struggle right. with this moment in the same way that somebody else does. Um, I might, however, struggle with uh, whether or not my kid gets to be in the fancy magnet school in our public school district. And do I still commit to the public school district if they don't get into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what happens if I don't get to be the leader of every group that, I, that, that I'm in? What happens if I don't, my children don't get to amass generational wealth through housing the same way that I did and stuff like that? Those are actually things that, you know what, if you're really pricked I got some questions about and I haven't figured out. Mm. And so this moment in whiteness is all of us get stop in the front, stop in pretending that there's a set of us doing really, really well, like the, the third bases of the world, if you will, the M&Ms that have figured out how to be white in this moment. Um, and that there's other folks who haven't. Um, and with each other, uh, this is a intra-group conversation, uh, having an intra-group conversation about 
damn, we're all scared and weird and, and kind of dumb about this. How do we figure out? Yeah. And having that conversation not be the only one we have, right? Um, I think if we stay and that our only responsibility is to a conversation within whiteness, then I think that conversation will become myopic and we'll probably, and there's a lot that we don't learn. And I think one thing that I love about this book, obviously, is that Adura Keeb's view of whiteness is so much richer and wiser than anything I could have gotten without with a, with, with, without his right. gaze on whiteness. Um, so there is, and we have a responsibility to be in heterogeneous community as well and not to self-segregate ourselves. But when we are in white spaces, I think there's an urgency of having our conversation be rooted in, damn, we don't know how to do this. And damn, we would really like to figure out how to do this mm. in a way that we haven't. Because I can feel you know, scared and paralyzed around this place. You know, I'm like, okay, so I feel like I'm kind of at the liberal left, kind of progressive, all of that sort of stuff. So I can self-soothe around my moral righteousness around all of that. Um, and the conversations I have with my white friends are uh, self-reinforcing about, you know, our outrage and therefore our inherent goodness because we feel outraged about it. Um you know, there's part of me that wants to say, how do I be an ally? How do I support the people who are less, haven't got the same cards that I've been dealt because um, I've been dealt most of the pack. Um, but I, how do I do that in a way that isn't me coming as the white male savior to kind of fix it and solve it? How do I, you know, you know, when you, when we started this conversation, you're like, I'm in white communities helping to, you know, metaphorically and maybe literally raise barns with white communities around that. Yeah. Are we now, I, do we, do you just walk away from places with other racial issues and go, look, you know what, my job, good luck guys. Cause I believe I want to impose my kind of white saviorness on you. There's so, there's so much to navigate through this that I, I am overwhelmed by the complexity of it all. Cause every choice feels loaded. Yeah. Um, not in I common. Have a question. <laughs> well, thank. I appreciate you being honest with me about that. Right. So that's so real, isn't it? Uh, that this this yeah. this overwhelm, and it probably feels familiar with other forms of societal overwhelm right now. And we're like, I don't know what to do about climate. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know how to participate in the economy in a way that that is is moral and ethical. Right. Um, and I. If the conversation stops at the big picture, we're just going to be stuck in that morass, right? Mm -hmm. You and I will be having an intellectual conversation about, well, I feel very badly about this, but I, I, uh, I don't know what to do. And it seems like there is, 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 is snake pits of mistakes to be made on both sides, right? Yeah. And that's why um, I don't work on any big national political issue at all. Um, right. I don't, uh, when somebody, when somebody asks me, you know, this big major news event, you know, Trump said this, or the, or, um, did you know this, 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 this famous podcaster said something racist, et cetera. I said, let's, let's not fight that fight right now. Not that it doesn't matter, not the accountability, et cetera. But if you live your entire life at that altitude, you're only going to get more and more confused. So instead right. let's take your altitude down to the place in which you live. Uh, and the, uh, the immediate, immediately what's going on in your town, in your city, in your neighborhood, mm. et cetera. Um, and the first question is, do you know the people you live around? Um, right. uh, do you know their needs? Do you know their story? Do you know their history, et cetera? Then more broadly, um, uh, in particular for those of us who are lucky to live in heterogeneous communities and diverse community in diverse metropolitan areas, et cetera, um, 
have you been learning from and listening to um, activists, black, brown, indigenous activists in your actual community about the kind of things they're working on, right? Perhaps you know, they are the attempts to desegregate school systems. Perhaps there is an attempt for affordable housing. Perhaps there are specific demands being made of your police department, things like that. Mm-hmm. And once you've started listening to that for a while, um, and you've also been getting to know your own neighbors, um, many of a lot of us, even in diverse metro areas, a lot of those neighbors are going to be white, um, uh, disproportionately. Um, uh, and you're, you're, you're walking on both those paths. What you're eventually going to discover is you're eventually going to discover in that story, like, yeah, we're trying to work with the police department or trying to work with the school district and stuff like that. You're going to discover a set of things that they, that, that, um, are barriers, uh, assumed barriers that, you know, we would love ideally to get this bill passed, but, uh, there's a set of white people that aren't going to allow it to be passed. Um, right. This voting rights bill is being blocked by this conservative state senator in the, in the Senate. Or this amazing desegregation plan for the city is going to be opposed because there's a set of white families on this side of town who don't want their really, really like A plus whatever, like gilded lily school to be moved. Um, and then when you have those two, you've been listening to the local issues enough. And you've also been getting to know actual white people in your area and where you come from enough. What you're going to have there is you're like, oh. You are specifically naming not a big national problem, but a specific concrete problem that there is a vote coming up in the school board and that you need white families from this district, from this school to show actually that they support it. Um, And then when you've got that, what you've got is a specific conversation with yeah. a specific set of people who are your actual neighbors that yes, you want to move, but hopefully you also have a spirit of also caring about them. Maybe some of those parents have a really, really like they, they've got kids with special needs that needs that, that and a story of how they've been treated in the district that also demands dignity and respect. And right. you're going to listen, but you're also going to push and you're going to care. And you're um, when, when people you're working with are getting sick, you're going to bring them food over. And when you get sick, they're going to bring you food over. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you're not even, even paying attention to this week's controversy of the week on Twitter, because what you're doing is you've got a set of people you care about. You've mm. got a project that you're trying to change that is specific, tangible, concrete in your community. And if you're not there yet, most of us aren't there yet. I've noticed in most communities, we don't even know what's going on. Our city council is talking about tremendously interesting things every week. Um, but uh, we, we find that it's easier to scroll a timeline to find out what that is. about a few months of noticing what are the activists talking about, not nationally, but locally. And what are my neighbor's stories Mm. um, are going to put you, I will often find for the vast majority of people I work with um, from that high level, nothing makes sense miasma (laughs) um, into a place where the world is still tough and still really confusing. And still we're very, very far from the world we dream of, but there's something to do. And more specific, more importantly, there's something to do with a specific group of people together. In your experience of kind of looking at, at neighbors and neighborhoods, have you come to see if there's any one thing or two things that feel non-negotiable for a neighborhood that has vitality to it? Mm. The, the the thing you take pride in mm. has to be something other than your property value. Um, the thing that you take pride in has to be something other than a lack of a crime rate. Mm. Um, and the thing that you are proud of has to be something other than the test scores of the schools where where uh, kids in the neighborhood go. 
The reason why I say those three things as mm -hmm. negative, I'm naming negatives first, is we talked earlier, Michael, about this draw towards individualism, right? Um, and those three things are the moment that neighbors stop being neighbors and become individuals. When the only thing we care about um, is uh, safety in a fearful, like, like, like castle mm -hmm. doctrine sort of way, when the only thing we care about is making sure that our little piece of the economic puzzle keeps going up, 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 or the only thing we care about is whether our kid gets into the best possible college. If that's the only thing that we're proud that we live in here, you don't actually care about a community. You care about your neighbor. You care about an investment opportunity, right? Um, and you care about the, the maintenance of a story, right? Um, so if you don't get to be proud, if that's the number one thing that you do, if you don't get to be proud of those three things, then you have to be proud of something else. Um, and the neighborhoods in this country, in this world that have the most vibrant stories that have, uh, you know, has a, a, a neighborhood festival that's been going on for 40 years that is all volunteer run. There's an incredible art and music and kids space and things like that. And people come from all over to see it. Um, that neighbor, that neighborhood only created that because a group of neighbors said, we're going to be really, really good at <laughs> right. is something other than those three things. Yeah. A neighborhood that is safe and walkable and green is, and uh, is something where, where everyone decided they're going to be proud of um, something other than that. A neighborhood where every older person and elder doesn't have to worry about whether or not they're going to have their walk shoveled for them is doesn't have to worry about, are they going to be able to get out to go to the hospital or go to the grocery store? If someone will be able to bring their groceries um, where every kid can know that they can play on the front steps and they're going to have a neighbor watching and caring about them. Those are things for a neighborhood to be really, really proud of yes. um, that you don't discover until you take those other three things off the table. Nice. Say, if we aren't going to be proud of these three things, mm -hmm. but we want to be proud of the neighborhood, I trust that you're going to come up with something pretty rad. Nice. Gary, it's been a very rich conversation. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? Mm. We are in a moment where all of us, you know, the, the angst and the, the questions like, you know, Gary, I don't know how to do this, right, uh, that you expressed earlier. We, none of us do. Um, and that's the bad news, right? Right. But it's also the really, really good news because I think that what's lost in this moment is that there is a universal yearning across race, across class, across gender, um, across uh, geography, across nationality that knows that we're on pretty precarious ground uh, and that we're coming to the limits of what the story we've been on has been and that we need a different story. Um, and I oftentimes those moments we can approach with a lot of bravado, uh, that um, our analysis of how we got to this place is right. Other people's analysis is wrong, et cetera. But I actually think that it's the vulnerability of this moment of, we don't know quite how we got here perfectly. Mm. We don't quite know what comes next, but the gift is that there is a universal longing for something different. Um, and I've seen that in, that 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 conversation with every single type of person as well. There's a universal longing for something different. And once you get close enough with somebody, a universal admittance that we don't have figured out that I feel like is gonna be that connection with each other is gonna be what gets us through. You could probably sense me just trying to hold on to this conversation with my fingertips. It was a tricky thing for me to navigate. I think because 
of so much of what Garrett's pointing to are not just elusive and challenging, but they're things that I'm working with right now, trying to figure out myself. And I'm going to pick two things to try and weave together. I don't have an answer here, but I'm just trying to make a connection. First, his statement, I'm trying to unlearn individualism. That feels important and it feels impossible because, of course, so much of our lived experience is individualistic. And then the reflection that often when you want to take action, every choice feels loaded and that can be paralyzing. And in part, there's this kind of connection back to individualism, which is, you know, what's my action? What am I tasked to do? How am I the hero of this? The therapist, Terry Real, Terence Real, as he calls himself on the book, has actually just put a new book out called Us. And in it, there's a quote, or maybe this comes from his kind of marketing around it, but it's, it's really resonant. At a time when toxic individualism is rending our society at every level, we need the tools to find our way back to each other through authentic connection and fierce intimacy. Authentic connection, fierce intimacy, and perhaps the willingness to raise a barn in the place where you live. Two interviews that I think supplement this one really nicely. Mina Salami, that's called Joy and Power, and Matthew Barzan, What to Do with Power. You can see both of these, in fact, this triumvirate of interviews is all about wrestling with what it means to have power, what it means to give power away, what it means to see how power works. And I think that is an extraordinarily, forgive the bad pun, powerful place to stand to actually start noticing what might otherwise be invisible. If you want more of Garrett, um, barnraisersproject.org is the website. Um, here's an occasional newsletter that I subscribe to, and I'd encourage you to think about that as well, barnraisersproject.org. Thank you for listening. It's always lovely to have you as a guest. Welcome, if you're a new person, to the podcast. We've had a little bump in subscribers recently, which has been fantastic. Um, if you're so moved, um, rating the podcast in some ways helps other people find it, kind of ticks the algorithm along. Um, but the best way this podcast grows is by word of mouth. So if this interview or another interview has particularly struck a chord, please think who might also enjoy it and give them a, drop them a note, give them a nudge, say, subscribe to this podcast. This should be one of your favorite podcasts. Um, I'll finish just by saying you're awesome and you're doing great.